Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. In the end, is there anything else? The irrefutable law of supply and demand. That's what causes all price changes. And what are we doing in the market? We're dealing with price change. Friend of the show, Tom Dorsey, legendary investor who's called various market highs and lows. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, repeatedly voted the best market in Virginia. You have to try them for Indian Wednesdays, the Beat Cafe, the selection of Blanchard coffees and juices and smoothies and sushis. Check them out at Elwood and Thompson Streets and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio, legendary investor Tom Dorsey, founder of Dorsey Wright & Associates, which sold to the NASDAQ in 2015. He was prescient on the crash of 87 and the 2000 dot-com bubble. Uh, Sir, how are you? Robin, I'm fine. Tom, you also told me that um, many aspects of 2018 reminded you of 1987. Is that right? First, I want to say, you know, what I enjoy is how we come in here totally (laughs) impromptu. I love it. (laughs) I mean, that's a question I, you know, I wasn't expecting, but that's fine. But, you know, when you and I get together like this, it's just totally impromptu. So I'm a, I'm a, that's why I get there's paid. There's nothing the, planned. That's why I get paid the big bucks, Tom Dorsey. Because <laughs> I'm internationally known and I'm known to rock the microphone. But go ahead. I, I digress. Well, as a matter of fact, I watched you on uh, your TED Talks the other day. Oh, yes, you did. Yeah, that was fantastic. Do you want to turn it around and just interview me? I want to interview you, yeah. As I want fact, you to talk to me that, about 1987 okay. versus 2018. Yeah, well, it's a chicken in 87. We just jump in, right? We just impromptu. Yes, 80, go for 1987, it. I was 10 months into Dorsey Wright & Associates. And the way we handled 1987 saved the company. We started out, actually, as an option strategy company because I, I ran an option department for Wheat First Securities for almost 10 years. So when I started Dorsey Wright & Associates, our technical analysis was more on the back end and option strategy was on the front end. So one of the indicators that we hung our hat on, and I still do to this day, is called the New York Stock Exchange Bullish Percent Index. And what that is, that was created by Ernest Staby back in 1945. And the idea with it was it's not price generated. It's buy and sell signal generated. In other words, with a point and figure chart, you have two things that can happen. A column of X's that exceeds a previous column of X's on the chart. That's considered a buy signal. Or conversely, a column of O's that exceeds a previous column of O's on the chart. That's a sell signal. When you count up, let's say on the New York Stock Exchange, there are 2,000 stocks. If I, if I took, uh, let's say I took a seventh grader and I stacked up 2,000 stocks, and I said, look at each one of these charts on the far right-hand side. If you see a column of X's that exceeds the previous column of X's, stack it over here. And when he goes, uh, that's all he has to do. When he goes through there and stacks up all the buy signals, column of X's exceeding a previous column of X's, and then divide by the total, we get a bullish percent. So in other words, out of 2,000 stocks, let's say the seventh grader, stacked up 1,000 charts where the last thing he saw on the far right-hand side was a column of X's exceeding a previous column of X's. And then we divide by 2,000, we have a bullish percent of 50%. So you have 50% positive stocks, 50% negative stocks. In other words, 50% on buy signals, 50% on sell signals. Well, in 1987, what happened was the market moves up, makes a new high. Now, what happened is interest rates were rising the whole year of 1987, as was the stock market. The market makes a new high. Bullish percent makes a new high. Then the market sells off. Utility stocks went coast to coast. And I mean, they were up at the 70% bullish, went down to 30% in less than a month. I mean, interest rates just, uh, as soon as Greenspan took over, he raised rates. And uh, that is the death knell for an interest rate sensitive stock. So what happened was the Dow Jones pulls back, bullish percent pulls back, But then the Dow Jones forges ahead one more time and makes a new high. And I think that was probably because people were looking for yield and they went, they bought oil stocks in the Dow. Wasn't that when they first coined the term melt-up? Coined the term what? Melt-up. The opposite of a meltdown. Yeah, melt-up. Yeah, exactly. People just piling into something, kind of the last innings of Precisely. And the Dow makes a new high. However, the percentage of stocks on buy signals doesn't. It barely gets going and then reverses back down. And what that means to me is the soldiers have left the battle, 
but the generals are still there. When you look at a cap-weighted index like the Standard & Poor's 500, the capitalization stocks, the top 40, pull that index around. With the Dow Jones, it's price-weighted. The big price stocks pull it around. What happened was the soldiers had left the battle. And it was clear to us at that point with that reversal back down in the bullish percent with the Dow Jones making a new high that we had big trouble. So Watson, who was my partner, who was the co-founder of Dorsey Wright & Associates, Watson Wright, um, every day in the report— Would you ever turn to him and say, elementary, my dear Watson? No. <laughs> People said that a thousand times. A thousand times. Oh, I thought it was being original. Go ahead. But what, but what happened was every day from that point forward, we wrote in our daily report— um, what, what you needed to do to protect yourself with options. Well, we were pretty much out of things to say, and this was around the 19th of, of uh, October, and the, the market goes down about, I'd say, 60 or 70 points that day, that Friday, and that was a big move for the Dow Jones. And we said that was probably what we were expecting. Well, Monday rolls around, and it wasn't. We were down 500 points in a matter of Which one used day. to mean something, 500 points. Well, it used to mean something, yeah. As a percentage, it's 20-some percent. If you did that today, uh, you're talking to 5,000, 6,000 points. You, you wouldn't know? be surprised if the market one day had a 5,000, 6,000 point pullback. Well, Is that even possible systemically? You have the circuit breakers now. Right. And the circuit breakers would prevent that. But I mean, by the time the circuit breakers kick in, I'm not sure exactly where the first one is, but you could be down over 1,000, 2,000 points. Tom, that was such a different world, oh, right? Where you had to call your broker. It was the only way you could place a trade. That's right. Index funds were just, I mean, we did not have ETFs. You're very familiar with the founding of the ETF. It's a very different kind of world right now. The news flow is just by the millisecond where you actually had to wait. Back in the day, you might have a Quotron machine, you might have the Financial News Network, which became C uh, CNBC. Uh, now everything is kind of scrutinized by the hypersecond. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, it's absolutely amazing. You know, but, but the same things that happen, it's fear and greed, you know, that cause these things to change. Now, what I'm afraid of, is that as we get more algorithmic trading and more AI, artificial intelligent trading, you don't have that fear and greed. But that's for another day. We can talk about that. But just recently, as you mentioned, 2018 reminded me of that. Here's what happened this year. January of this year, Dow Jones makes a new high. And the bullish percent, same thing, new high, up at 70%. By July, the Dow Jones makes another new high but the bullish percent, in other words, the percentage of stocks that are on buy signals was down around the 55% level. So the soldiers again had left the battle just like 1987. So what I said at that point in time was this market reminds me of 1987. But it's, it's 2018. I'm not expecting a 500-point decline in one day. But it reminded me that picture, that, that, that graph was identical to what happened in 1987. Well, it's... It's been a rough road since that point in time. When you see the soldiers leaving the battle and the generals are still there, it won't take much much more time before the generals finally give up. I mean, in a more subjective way, we have been, and we've talked about it on the show quite often, is we've been lulled to sleep since the, the dislocation and the huge epic volatility of 2008 to 2011. Things have been kind of risk on consistently. We forgot really what a 10% correction feels like. We truly forgot what a bear market feels like where you pull back on the order of you know 20%. I think we pretty much hit it in 2011, but everybody has bought the sell-offs. Yep. And it's just been an opportunity to get in. And we've seen the enormous flows that have gone to the index worlds like the vanguards and the black rocks and ETFs and people checking out of actively managed indexes and checking out of, of, of following the markets in general. You don't see the panic euphoria oscillations like you used to. That's absolutely right. You know, what's happening now is when you have to look at the indicators, because if you look at the news, the news is going to make you go crazy. You can look at what's going on in France, and here they finally raise taxes on uh, fuel, and the place erupts. At what point does that happen here? You know, at what point does something like this happen? I can't think about those things. I have to look at the indicators, and the indicators suggested to us that the defensive team is on the field. When that bullish percent exceeds a previous bottom, it's called bear confirmed status, and and, and that means the defensive team is on the field. So what do you do when the defensive team is on the field? I mean, there's a multiplicity of things. You can, um, you can buy less stock. You can stop buying stock. You can 
buy puts on your portfolio for insurance. You can sell calls. You can cut back. You can put stops in. You can do all kinds of things that would be defensive moves. But when that indicator suggests that you're on defense, believe it. Now, they treat you know, when you you take investing in the MBA sense in Finance 101, you're taught that the ultimate ballast to a portfolio is is uh, the peerless U.S. Treasury note and Treasury bonds and Treasury bills. But that's also been distorted, right? We keep talking about the 35-year bull market in bonds and the Fed breaking the back of inflation. Today, if you really wanted to go into a secure position, is there truly security in Treasuries? I mean, to the extent that... Um, People have piled into all manner of fixed income securities since the financial crisis, um, junk rated debt, A rated debt, everything. And you don't know if inflation is ever going to be in the offing again. We still have really uh, low interest rates compared to, to, to history nominally. Well, I'll tell you what. We have so much debt out there. If rates probably went to 4 percent, we'd be underwater and paying off uh, paying the interest on our debt. I mean it's it, – I was thinking about that this morning, as a matter of fact, Robin. I was up early this morning, and I started thinking about the debt that we have in the United States. And I'm by no means an economist or anything like that. I have a degree in economics, and I think about economics all the time. But it reminded me of a TV show I used to watch. You ever watch the show, um, uh, not The Biggest Loser, but My 600-Pound Life? Yes. Remember that? And I started thinking about that, you know, that— most of us at some point in our life decide we want to lose weight and, you know, it's your, things are starting to get out of hand and you come to the realization that it's getting out of hand. So you start to lose weight. Some people go on a diet. Some people go into the gym, do whatever they have to lose weight. But the government doesn't. The government continues on. They keep borrowing money, keep borrowing money, writing, printing more money. And that made me think about the person who gets up to that six and 800 pound level. And as I was reading some of that this morning, Dr. Now is the doctor that, that these people go to for help. He's probably the best surgeon, um, uh, bariatric type of surgeon. And he was talking to one of his patients and he said – and he told the patient, he said, you're going to have to begin eating less food. And the patient said, what am I supposed to do? I have to eat. And Dr. Now says, you've been eating. You've eaten 800 pounds worth of food. And you think about the government. How much have we been eating? You know, what's our weight? How long does it continue on? Do we ever get bariatric surgery? Do we ever go to the gym? Do we ever lose weight? No, the debt continues to rise. But Tom, as you know, that profligacy used to be time was that that would get punished by what they called bond vigilantes. We haven't seen that in forever because I say with the American exceptionalism, we can go off you know, in, ter in terms of spending and, and do crazy things, but foreign investors still want to pile into our debt into our securities. And so we're not punished with higher rates the way Greece and other profligate countries, Brazil, which was a fiscal basket case. It's something very unique about the United States. So there isn't a reckoning. You say there isn't a reckoning? I haven't felt one, at least in my investing career. No, I haven't either. But you, when you look at someone who is 800 pounds, something has to be done. Do you think the United States economy is morbidly obese now? I think so. On debt? Well, the economy is going as strong as can be, but we. But when you have trillions of dollars of debt, I mean, we can't even fund the the unfunded debt. I mean, no matter what happens, I when I when I think about it, what if the government went to China and said, "Hey, here's what we're going to do. We owe you trillions of dollars, and uh, we're going to buy back our bonds that we sold you, and uh, that's part of our deal." Well, I'm going to devalue the dollar to zero. Take it to an extreme. I devalue the dollar to zero. I give you dollars to buy your bonds, and there you have it. Of course, you have anarchy at that point. But what do you do when you get to a point like that where all of a sudden this comes home to roost? Look at France. Did, did uh, I guess is Macron is his name, uh, think that if he raised uh, taxes on uh, fuel, energy, gas, that this wouldn't have happened? I mean – this guy's probably going to get thrown out. 
You talk about the pitchfork scenario, and I certainly thought that would have happened in 2008 and 2009 when you had certain people getting bailed out. I think about the General Motors example, right? General Motors, if you're a person out there with a job or a company that went under and you were you were credit constrained and everything happened, and then you had the Fed take rates to zero, you have difficulty paying your mortgage, which is underwater, uh, but you see a GM get bailed out, you see Chrysler take bailout money, you see a select few, you see Wall Street paid out at 100 cents on the dollar. I would have imagined that that would have been the pitchfork moment. And not only that, savers over a decade have seen their savings rates go to zero, right? So you're stealing from, you're taking from lesser lesser wealthy people to kind of pay off the halves. But that never happened. No, it never did happen. But my my thought is, at what point does it happen? What has to happen for that app to happen? I don't know. I don't think about... I think about just for our conversation here, you know, this is just like having a, a beer and talking about it. For me, I have to look at the indicators. You know, so for my my job is not to predict what's going to happen economically. We're just having a conversation here that we've gotten to be 800 pounds. Maybe we get to be uh, 2,000 pounds. I don't, I don't know. But what I have to look at is when the indicators go to defense, I have to play it that way. You know, I told you the story about me. I almost uh, probably my last day of my life was back in when I was 21 years old. And I learned something about following your indicators. And I was flying a Cessna 150 uh, back when I was 21. I was in the Navy. I was an E3. Wasn't making any money. And I was coming back from um, uh, Palm Springs after lunch. And I got disoriented. Long story short, I was confused. I didn't know where I was. This was back. You didn't have GPS then. You had sectional charts. And you tried to to line it up with the train tracks and the mountain and that type of thing. And I said, if I can just get to the coast, I'm going to be fine. And if I got to the coast, I could turn left, I'll go to Brownfield. And so I said, oh, I got to look for the ocean. If I see the ocean, just follow to the ocean. Well, I looked out the windshield of that Cessna 150 and I saw ocean. There was no question in my mind. And I started going forward. And I was, I was, I was so disoriented, I started powering the plane up, using more fuel to get there as quick as possible. And next thing I know, I'm in land that I, I'm, I'm in a video game flying in between mountains. And my left tank goes empty. And the whole time I'm looking at the ocean that I think I see the ocean, I look at my compass and it says, you're flying southeast. And I said, the compass is wrong. I'm flying southeast. No, I see the ocean. I'm flying toward the ocean. I'm flying west. I need to see the ocean. I want to see the ocean. My mind said, that sky is the ocean. The compass said, you're flying southeast, partner. I ended up 18 miles south of Takati, Mexico. <laughs> Left tank went empty. Right tank was almost empty. And I had to land that plane in a horse pasture. So I learned something about following your indicators. And I've never, I've never forgotten that. So even though we can have a conversation over beer and, and say, hey, when, when will this come to roost and that type of thing, who knows? All I know is when the indicators say I'm flying southeast, I believe it now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Tom Dorsey, legendary Wall Street guy. He was founder of Dorsey Wright and Associates, which he sold to the NASDAQ in 2015. Tom, we also offline spoke about the United States wildly outperforming international in the decades since the the great financial crisis. I mean, I'm looking at numbers here. The United States up about 120, 25% in terms of the S&P 500. You look at Japan up a mere 12%. France and Germany down about 5%. The UK, which is in a Brexit mess, down 8%. China down 12%. Spain down 31%. Brazil down 35%. Russia cut in half. That's in total return terms, in, in, in U.S. dollar terms. Is there a part of you, and I know you've been called to, to throw a webcast about international investing that's saying that we've romanced this perfect kind of Goldilocks scenario for the longest time in the United States. It's time to plow that money back into international. I think it, it probably is. Your best trade um, this year or the last few years was to be long U.S. and short international. Um, now we're in a situation where I think the opposite is likely to happen. When I look at charts like the EIDO, which is Indonesia, um, this breaking out to the upside. You look at Brazil, same thing. Um, a lot of these emerging markets are coming along strong now. Um, your, your play, if you could do this, would be short the U.S., long, long international. And you'd probably do it through exchange-traded funds. But in that scenario where everything sells off, they seem to sell off in tandem. 
Do you have to have that kind of thing happen for new leaders to take hold? Well, what you what you, what you would do is what I was just talking about was would you would be short the U.S. and long and long international. So you have a pairs trade. It's like a relative strength trade. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be like a currency trade where you're long Japanese yen, short U.S. dollar, long U.S. dollar, short Japanese yen, that type of play. Now, I think if you could be long international, short U.S., that would probably be the play. It really went against the wisdom, didn't it, that there's no way the United States could have led the world out of this morass to the extent that it took the world down. Um, go one more time on that. So think about it. If the United States with subprime slime took the world down and it was Wall Street that burned down the global economy, it would stand to reason that it wouldn't be the one leading the world out of this right now. It it quickly became the envy of the world again in terms of treasuries, uh, economic growth. If you read the unemployment rate, if you believe that it's below 4% at a 50-year low. Well, you know, things are happening fantastic here in the United States. I mean, as far as um, uh, jobs are concerned, uh, bankruptcies. And I even looked at an economic indicator the other day uh, that we have set to point and figure charts, and that is government hiring. You wouldn't believe this chart. This is the first time I've ever seen this chart about to give a sell signal where government hiring has been going straight down. That's an important thing. Nobody's even aware of that. And that's one of the first things that if somebody uh, borrows money from the IMF, they tell you, look, cut, cut 10% of your government employees out. That's happening to uh, Ecuador right now. And it's, hap- it's already happening now. So Trump has, has done that. He's been able to begin reducing the uh, employment in the government. Do you think the markets here pay all that much attention to the volatility in D.C.? You have uh, Democrats taking control of Congress. You have Trump very willing to bloody the nose of a China, for example, mm-hmm. or to go to hard negotiations with Canada. There's a, a new set of headline risks. Or do you ignore those? I mean, I think about China. I think about – so if you really want to jab that giant panda and make it angry, how can they retaliate? You know, you have to kind of – you have to you, you think it through. I mean, if they retaliate so much, they end up harming themselves because they're overwhelmingly dependent on American consumers buying their wares and keeping their factories running. It's all intertwined. And Absolutely. so it's mutually assured destruction at some point. Absolutely. That's why, that's why it's absolutely essential you look at your compass. And that's how you manage your portfolio. You have to have – you got to get religion at some point on Wall Street, Robin. And you got to go to that church every single week. And that religion might be – maybe it's fundamentals. It's not fundamentals for me. For me, it's the point in figure charting that, that I came across back in the 70s, a lost art that I resurrected. That's the, that's the, the, the indicators to me about what I need to do to manage a portfolio. Beyond that, there's no point in even I – I haven't – you know what? I haven't watched a news show in 15 years. Really? I've not turned on a news show. 15 years. So that's all noise to you? All noise. 100% noise. What's not noise is the reality of price. That's the only thing that's not noise. That's reality. Stock goes up, stock goes down, and you record it. That's the point in figure chart. It's it's simply a logical, organized way of recording that imbalance between supply and demand. And in the end, is there anything else? The irrefutable law of supply and demand. Mm. That's what causes all price changes. And what are we doing in the market? We're dealing with price change. Tom, what are you hearing from all the active managers out there that are lamenting the, the death of their business as it gets sucked into the ETF and index vacuum? Well, they're going to have to I – think, I think the professional managers are going to have to accept the fact that fees are going to continue to become compressed. They're going to have to find more ways to become viable for their customers. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, make yourself necessary to somebody. And that word necessary, put quotes around that because I, I, I'll ask, I might be speaking to a group of advisors and say, how many of you actually believe you're necessary to your customer? Could anyone else come in and sit in your, in your seat and do what you do? And you see the faces all of a sudden get long and they come to the realization they're not necessary. And the less necessary you are to your customers, the more your fee is going to contract, plain and simple. And with exchange-traded funds... Just think about this, Robin. Google it. 92% over the long haul of money managers never outperform the S&P 500. So if you want to be in the top 8% of all money managers in the world, buy the S&P 500. 
That symbol is SPY. <laughs> and, and, and companies actually fighting each other right now to bring those costs down. If you look at Schwab and Fidelity and Vanguard, there's a real race to the bottom. That's right. I have an account at, at Schwab, and uh, they've given me free commissions. I also trade at uh, Folio Investors. No cost to me to buy. I can buy 1,000 stocks twice a day through a window at no cost. I mean, that is a complete sea change from how it used to be. I mean, you, were, you, you came of age in the regulation and deregulation of commissions and then the discount brokers and Chuck Schwab and phone trading and online trading. I mean, you still see the ads for active traders every now and then on CNBC and Fox Biz, but it's, it's really a relic. I'm still struck by the extent to which people have tuned out individual earnings reports. I mean, maybe Apple and Amazon, or maybe that's a result of the echo chamber that we see on, on TV news. They want to make news out of something that isn't being followed. Overwhelmingly, people have defaulted into index funds and kind of don't beat the market, just be the market. Just be the market. But there are ways to add value to that also. You know, because being the market, when you just if you just think back 18 years, Robin, and you said, 18 years, I had a choice. 18 years ago, the first day of the year 2000, I could have chosen two S&P 500s. One is equal weighted, which would be more like uh, the Senate, and one is capitalization weighted, which would be more like Congress. Which one of those, same 500 stocks, which one of those would you like to have chosen 18 years ago? Well, the answer is the equal weighted Standard & Poor's 500. Both the same stocks, exact same stocks, the equal weighted has beaten the pants off the cap weighted. But the purists would have told you why mess with something that worked so great during the 90s where the big players like the GEs, the Cisco's, the Dell's that overwhelmed this index and were the 10-ton elephants in it. That was the way to go, the traditional cap weighted index. No one would have predicted that small cap would have had its day and there was a much better way to build a mousetrap, just to have a 500 equal weight index. But you know what, Robin? There's an easy way to compare and contrast that. And it's called children's division, fourth grade division. If I want to compare and contrast the equal weighted Standard Poor's 500 with the cap weighted, then um, I can divide one by the other. It gives me a number. I chart it on a point and figure chart, and I know which one has the best relative strength. That's why I, I came out with the concept of the people's portfolio. And it's kind of a Karl Marx bent on that, the people's portfolio. I was looking out the window one day, and I saw this guy with one of these big lawnmowers outside our, our office. And I thought to myself, who helps him? Does he bring his $3,000 he has saved, if he has that, to a large brokerage firm and open an account and hasn't have an advisor? Answer is no. So I thought, what can I create that would suit this person? And it's called the People's Portfolio, DWPP. And it's simply a comparison and contrast between the cap-weighted S&P 500, the equal-weighted S&P 500, and money market. Whichever one of those three has the best relative strength, 100% of the portfolio is in it. Why can't, you know, and this is to wonk out with you to go back to MBA 101, if say I have $10,000 and transaction costs and liquidity are not a concern, why can't I smash that into equal bits across every security on the planet? Doesn't it make sense from the efficient frontier perspective in investing? Take my money. Come, things are bound to zig while others are zagging. Don't make any decision on actively overweighting big caps or small caps or emerging or just leave it there to be completely attuned to global economic growth. And over time, you might capture something north of what maybe the basic S&P 500 will. Well, you can do you. that. That's available today. But what you're going to get is mediocrity. And why strive for mediocrity? I mean, that's the thing about this business is, is I can look at indexing. Let's say a person came into an office and said, I want to, let's just index. I want to be passive. Okay, that's not so easy. What index do you want to own? Let's just look at the Standard & Poor's indexes. There's a Standard & Poor's cap weight, equal weight. There's a Standard & Poor's value, 500 value, Standard & Poor's 500 uh, growth. There's a mid-cap value, mid-cap growth, small cap. I haven't even gone outside indexing yet. And I have, let's say, 11 different things that I can select from. And if I compare them on a relative strength basis, I have a good chance of taking, let's say, the top five, and I have a good chance of outperforming all during the time that I'm not going outside indexing. So why not strive to get outside mediocrity 
but still, it's it's like driving from Richmond, Virginia to Washington, D.C. You have a straight line 100 miles for 100 miles. There'll be periods when I'll get out in the left lane and pass a car and get back in the right lane. I'm not jumping back and forth over the median. I'm not jumping into the woods and crashing into trees. But that's the concept of smart indexing is to use relative strength, which is long-term, to determine which one of these S&P indexes I should be in. Now you're bringing value to your customer all while you are still indexing. Tom, what do you tell uh, students who come up to you and ask for advice? I know sometimes you advise the VCU School of Business and people uh, who cross paths with you. Are you sure you want to hear this? Yeah, I do want to hear it. Well, here's one. One of our interns at Dorsey Wright & Associates, in order to be hired at Dorsey Wright & Associates, you have to be an intern first. At least when I ran the company, you did. And you'd be an intern for a few years. And, and one of the guys... Um, came to me. He was graduating at Virginia Commonwealth University, and uh, his name was Jesse. And he took me to lunch, and he said, "Tom, he said, I'm, I am, planning to go to work at West Vaco." He said, "What do you think?" I said, "It's a great company, the packaging company. It used to be yeah. Mead, Mead West Vaco. It's now right. West Rock." I said, "It's a great company," but I said, "How old are you, Jesse?" He said, "21." I said, "Why do you want to get into a cubicle at 21?" He said, "What do you think I should do?" I said, I think you should go to China and teach English for a year. And then when you finish teaching English for a year, go to Australia and bartend for a year. Then take a backpack and go through Europe, work around as much as you can for a year. Now you've got a resume I want to see. You don't need to jump right into business. Go do something interesting with your life. And if you want to go to a Spanish-speaking company, country, teach English in Ecuador or somewhere else, these are the kinds of things that I want to see on a resume. So what I tell kids to do, Get out and go make that resume. I wish I had the guts to do that, the courage of my convictions when I was 20. I tell you, Tom, I was a strapping guy. I had gorgeous black hair, jet black hair. <laughs> I was uh, in demand across the planet. Uh, people would write me love letters. But no, I went to work for Goldman Sachs for a couple of years, and I kept an LSAT booklet somewhere in case I wanted to break it and go to law school. Hopefully I didn't. Thankfully I haven't, right? <laughs> But it's a really confusing time, and I get so many inquiries from people in their early 20s that say, I want to go and work on Wall Street. I want exposure. I got to tell you what you end up doing on Wall Street, whether you're in investment banking or brokerage, you put pitch books together. You become a PowerPoint and spreadsheet monkey. That's and it's right. so sad that you have to homogenize and sublimate all your passions and all your you know 20-something verve into that life. Well, you know, I didn't finish the story. Tell me. You know what, Robin? Jesse went online and got himself hired to teach English in China. And he taught for a year. Every time he had a break, weekends and whatnot, he traveled. He learned to speak Mandarin fluently. And I said, Jesse, how did you do that? He said, there was a restaurant right by my, uh, my apartment. He said, I, I lived in one of these tenement buildings. It was all Chinese, you know, where the incandescent light just hangs down. And he said, I used to go to this restaurant that was right downstairs from us. And he said, I used to point at this, at, at, at a dinner that I knew tasted good. He said, that's all I could do was just point at something. And he said, I had to learn Chinese. So he said, he told me I got a detective pad, one of these little detective pads, and I started writing down phrases. And the next thing you know, he began to speak uh, Mandarin Chinese. He said he had uh, uh, neighbors would invite him to dinner in his, in his uh, uh, apartment complex. None of them spoke English. They would just sit there and laugh at him all night. And he would go there and have dinner with them. But he would take down these little uh, phrases and whatnot. He ended up speaking fluent Mandarin. From there, he went to Shanghai, started a business helping uh, America's small corporations fill out the paperwork to come and do business in China. Did that for a year. Then came back and, and became a medical devices salesman, now has his own company. And so these are the things you would urge young people to do. I mean, Absolutely. You used to have a proxy for that, whether Peace Corps or you know, to teach elsewhere, teach for America, yeah, Princeton in Asia. Anything. Go out and do something unique because as a CEO, that's what I want to see on a resume. I don't want to see that you were 21 and you went into a cubicle. No, save that for your 30s. <laughs> save that for your 30s, exactly. <laughs> save that for your 30s. Because once you get out on the road and you do something unique like that, you find yourself and you find – you may find your direction is not Wall Street. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Tom Dorsey, founder of Dorsey Wright & Associates, which sold to the NASDAQ in 2015. He's the legendary investor who was prescient on both the crash of 87 and the 2000 tech and telco bubble, which exploded in massive fashion. Uh, Tom, have we collectively forgotten what fear is like? I mean, even with the newfound volatility, something that's so visceral. I, I just recall, and I always share this story, when I was a, a business writer at, at, at Business Week, people were tapping on my window, you know, during the bailouts and everything happening with AIG, really fearing that we were going to be in bread lines and eating cat food. And that they tell you the most cold eyed investors tell you that's when you should be buying. I don't I'm not convinced that we've felt anything like that fear for over a decade. Well, you know, watching your video, and I think it was TED Talks, correct? Yeah. That was a great video. And you came from you were a refugee from Iran. That sticks in your mind. That's never left you. So that fear that you had living in Iran, you, people should go listen to your listen to your TED Talks. It was really great where you talk about the book you wrote too, um, uh, Scarface, mm -hmm. Hotel Scarface, which is a fantastic book. Thank you. As a matter of fact, you mentioned that someone uh, in, in, in the movie Power said this would, be a, this would make a great movie. Yeah, no, it's being adapted into a I TV series. I think it would. I love it. That was my initial fearful moment yeah, in the United fearful. States. And actually, when I came to the industry was in, um, I, you know, I passed my Series 7 and it was um, the autumn of 1998. You was baptism by fire because LTCM was crashing, Russia was crashing, the ruble. This was a period of, of unbelievable consternation and we didn't know what would happen. But by 1999, that was quickly forgotten and then we were into full swell of the dot-com bubble. Well, in 1998, I remember distinctly... That was a year of owning the cap-weighted Standard & Poor's 500. If you did anything beyond owning the cap-weighted SPX, you, you didn't make it. That's all you had to do. And it was the top 40 stocks that pulled it around. Interesting enough, in the year 2000, I'll never forget, we just talk about the bullish percent index on the New York Stock Exchange. We also keep bullish percent indexes on everything else. And the over-the-counter market back then, that's the, the stocks with the four-letter symbols. In one week, I noticed that the bullish percent in the, in the over-the-counter stocks reversed into a column of O's, i.e. defense, and the New York Stock Exchange simultaneously reversed into X's, i.e. offense, and it was clear to us that it was over for the small stocks, that the play now was the bigger stocks. And that was the unique thing about the dot-com crash is there was somewhere to go. In 2008, there was nowhere to go. Everything became correlated. They gave the, the accounts to the uh, margin clerk and just said, raise, raise cash. Back in 2000, you had a place to go. But it was interesting. The bullish percents tipped us off to that, and uh, we were able to alert our clients to what, just ha what had just happened. You know, one of the companies you no doubt followed in your days of do you go big, do you go small, was the standard bearer, America's stock, General Electric, which has had – uh, several years to forget. This was a company that that way back in its peak in the summer of 2000 was worth nearly $600 billion, and now it's worth $60 billion. Right. It's a completely broken story. I, I, I know we don't talk about individual stocks. I'm not asking for a recommendation or anything, but that just blows my mind. A company that had these assets that was that voracious in banking and mergers and acquisitions and, and buying and selling things to have uh, collapsed in such a fashion. I mean, yeah, GE but it, could go away and we wouldn't even know. It shouldn't surprise you, Robin. I mean, when you think back to Dow Jones stocks. Or Westinghouse. Bethlehem Steel. Sure. Westinghouse. Eastman Kodak. How could Eastman Kodak miss that whole change to digital? So this doesn't surprise me at all that GE but would GE, do this. But GE, Tom, if you go to Disney World, man, don't you remember the carousel of progress where you'd be sitting and you'd watch all the different eras with the first icebox and the first TV and there'd be that song go, now is the time, now is the best time. This is GE, man. This own NBC. This had everything. This was, gosh, General Electric. They used to say in the time of Welch that you could just buy that one company and it would be like buying the S&P 500. And that goes to show you. There's no such thing as that. That's why you have to look at your compass. And if it says you're flying southeast, you got to believe it. And GE didn't just get down here by itself and all of a sudden overnight wake up and um, um, 
it, it, it's here. This stock has given multiple sell signals, relative strength, negative changes, trend lines broken. You know, I asked people, I said, in, you know, when you think about fundamentals and technicals, in, in 2008, were there any fundamentally sound companies that went down? No. There were no technically sound companies that went down because in order for that stock to begin declining, it has to do something that tips you off that there's something wrong. A trend line breaks, multiple sell signal, relative strength changes negative versus versus money market. It There are tips. But as far as fundamentals are concerned, there are no tips because the fundamentals don't change. Fundamentals are still good. The only difference that changes is investors' sentiment changes to selling stocks rather than buying them. That's all there is. And people view this has gotten a lot of press, especially towards the end of the year with Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. I think he's worth north of $150 billion. And Amazon, it oscillates back and forth to being you know, not on the biggest retailer, but it has a hand in so many different businesses. It was briefly worth a trillion dollars. And he tells people in in very straightforward way, we too will go bankrupt someday. And it's pretty hard to believe. It's hard to fathom. You know, I see Verizon writing down the value of Yahoo, which it acquired and Yahoo at the turn of the century was indefatigable, was the biggest internet player, right? Yeah. And now it's just meaningless. And that you can see in a less than 20-year cycle. But for something like GE, which goes back to the turn of, I mean, you know, the time of Edison, that is, is enormously— Doesn't surprise me at all. It's part of the ecosystem. And it doesn't, wouldn't surprise me if that happened to Amazon. I mean, I think of Amazon, it's really the only place I want to go shop um, because they know me. You know, when I go on online and buy something, it says, oh, hey, did you get your Malaysian white coffee? Oh, no, I forgot to do that. And all of a sudden, your buddy over here just bought this. Yeah, he bought that. I better buy it. You know, so they've captivated me. But it wouldn't take a lot for another company to come along and compete with them and get a share of what I do. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if we're talking on here someday and say, could you believe what's happened with Amazon? And that did, have, that did very briefly had a near-death experience in 2001 and 2002, and they had layoffs, but they reinvented. That's right. And they made the wrenching decisions to self-disrupt and self-destruct. And, um, you know, while I have you here, there's a, there's a local company that's a multinational that was, according to some, you know, some stats, the most profitable of the 20th century, Philip Morris USA, owned by Altria. Uh, very much in the news lately because their core business of, of, of smokable cigarettes is collapsing, and a lot of that is going to vaping and Juul. And I wonder, I mean, when you look at a company like that, which has been a dividend-sensitive player, I mean, pays out a huge portion of profits out as dividends, how do you – how do you look at a company like that? I mean, it seems like all the rules have been taken off the table. Well, again, you what you have to do is you have to follow the charts because that's that's investor sentiment. You know, what what is that? Sentiment? That's Philip big Mo, M-O. It's still M-O. Yeah, I'm just pulling this up right now. And M-O's got problems. I look at that chart right now, and it, and it's got problems. It's not something that I probably would want to own right now. So they are out there closing out the year by buying a huge stake in a cannabis company in Canada and flirting with the idea of taking a stake in the leading vape company, Juul. And you wonder at that point, because everybody's saying the same thing about GE. You didn't self-disrupt and self-destruct. But these companies that don't innovate will die. They'll just, they'll just, they'll just, it'll be a declining annuity and diminishing and atrophying situation. Look at Eastman Kodak. They didn't innovate. I mean, in today's day and age, if you don't innovate, you are going to die. So they had the half-baked Kodak digital cameras that nobody wanted to buy, and it was Canon, and it was the smartphone companies that that ate their lunch. Mm -hmm. And you similarly see that that someone like an Altria or Philip Morris International or Reynolds Tobacco has not come out with the chief vaping product. It's not like they they plowed the money into the the must-have vaping technology, which a couple what Stanford guys did with Juul. This just shows you that a company that was that profitable, that ridiculous, I think the, the stat is a dollar invested in Philip Morris uh, at the turn of the century in 1900 by 2010, 2015 would be worth millions of dollars. I mean, that's kind of inconceivable. But all of this stuff is, is ripe for disruption. It doesn't last forever. I remember being interviewed by the local television station here. They came into Dorsey Wright, sat down with me, and this was when – um, this this was the like the billion dollar lawsuits that were going on with them. Sure. And they were and they were going to court at Williamsburg or something like that back then. And they came into the office and they wanted me to, to say how bad Philip Morris was. 
And I showed him the chart. I said, Philip Morris is not going down. This stock is going straight up. I mean, it. I would want to own Philip Morris. I said, but but it's got this billion-dollar lawsuit on it. I don't care. Investor sentiment suggests this is going, is, is going higher. That's news that's already out. But now you actually see warning signals across the board. Yeah, I do, absolutely. But you'll find it with a lot of stocks with what's happened. The carnage that has, that's happened here of late, just yesterday, the Standard & Poor's broke the long-term trend line. So um, with that trend line being broken, it's, there's a lot of work that has to be done before this market can get back up in a sustained um, uh, uptrend. This is not overnight stuff. Well, in the 10 minutes or so we have with you, Tom, I'd like you to go freestyle. It's your soapbox. Stand free, on it. Go freestyle? Yeah, free skate. <laughs> well, what do you want to talk about? Well, we talked about real estate as well. Your family is in, interested in making you know, some opportunistic real estate investments. And that's something that I, I turned to you and said, how do you talk to family? Um, and this kind of gets into personal finance a little bit about the opportunity cost of money. I always have a number in the back of my head that I could earn in the money market fund or in a treasury or in the dividend yield of the S&P 500, if not a risk-free rate. How do you have that discussion with family to convince them not to go off and, and, and make these really quirky, illiquid investments? Oh, that's very difficult, Robin. That's very difficult. I, I have taught my daughter all her life to be in control, and she's now in control of me. And uh, she is an entrepreneur at heart. In fact, she has a degree in entrepreneurship from Virginia Commonwealth University. And my wife uh, and my daughter have done have, have renovated numerous houses, not flipping them, but more bringing them back to their old glory. They like old houses that are just beaten up, and they've renovated those and, and brought them back to their old glory. And now they're stepping out into something that's much larger. Um, for me, Robin, I mean, being on Wall Street for 45 years, if it doesn't have a symbol and trade on an exchange, I tend not to understand it. You know, so when I think about real estate, I think like you, opportunity costs. What could I do with that money? Um, I don't want to go to the bank and borrow the money, although you could do that, and it would be a tax write-off if you if you did. But still, that's a large chunk of money when you get into building condominiums and that type of thing. So, yeah, it, it scares me. And your son is a pool hall yeah. entrepreneur, has the best burger at his pool hall here in, in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, they've won three years in a row, uh, best burger. But that restaurant, it, it's a real restaurant. I mean, here in Richmond or in Virginia, you have to sell 40% food versus the alcohol you sell. They sell 100%. They have a chef there that just puts out the best darn food you can possibly imagine. You wouldn't mind going to the pool hall even if you didn't play pool just to eat. And that's Diamond Billiards. So he's learned from you, as you told me, he divined a lot growing up from you. And both, you know, all your children have. But what have you learned about the restaurant business in reverse from him? Well... Again, what I've learned is it's very tight margins. The interesting thing about the restaurant business, my father was chief of food service for the Army. So my whole life was spent around food service. And um, I think that's where my son Mitchell um, got it. He graduated from George Washington University in, um, um, in New York, the uh, Culinary Institute of New York City, and so on. Thomas owns a pool hall that has a, has a restaurant. But I think more interesting with that is here's a, here's a kid that we knew his profession would be play because he was so serious about play as a kid. He's learned to be a very proficient option strategist. And you know where he learned it? YouTube. He now manages portfolios for me. Option strategy portfolios, which ha we do a lot of. Having taught himself over YouTube. Taught himself. I didn't even know it. Here he has a guy who has a dad who has years of experience in option strategy. Never once did he ask me. I only knew it one time when I was talking with him at lunch and I was flabbergasted. I said, Thomas, where did you learn this? He said, YouTube, Dad. And that tells you something about education today. Kids want to go to YouTube. Who wants to sit in class and listen to a professor? I think there's still something to that. I've had some of my most captivating professors. I know Richard Tedlow at, at, in business school. That guy, it was like watching stand-up comedy when he'd talk about history. And Henry Ford and but get the book, Tom Edison. Get the book iGen and learn about the kids who grew up with technology. You didn't grow up with technology. These are the kids that, that go to bed with their phone. They wake up with their phone. 
and they don't know anything other than that. It's an interesting book about that generation that's coming up now. To that end, how are these kids going to invest when you hear about millennials and robo-advisors and people who have largely, they came of age in the financial crisis. They saw their parents hurt. Um, they saw they, all they remember, you know, the, the, from the early scandals of the 2000s and everything that culminated in 2008, we still hear indications that they're overwhelmingly in cash and overwhelmingly averse to taking market risk. That's right. They don't. The, the iGens, which is that new generation, they don't take that risk. In fact, in this book, it mentions a 14-year-old is like a 10-year-old. Kids don't go on dates. They still in their teens um, go with groups of people with a parent you know, attached. These are kids. Remember when you grew up? As soon as you were able to get your license, driver's license. I was license, riding a motorcycle at age six, Tom. Yeah. I was breaking the law. You were breaking the law. <laughs> no, no, I know. But today they don't want to break the law. No. And they don't want their license yet where we would have just gone crazy if we didn't get our learner's permit and been able to drive. They don't want to do that. So it's an interesting book, iGen. And, uh, you know, I'm working with VCU. Uh, I'm on the board of directors there and we're talking about how to maybe change some of the business courses to uh, make it more interesting for people that younger kids that are coming up. You know, one one example is um, Marquise Brownlee. I'll send you some of his videos. This guy is perhaps the most respected tech product reviewer, bar none. I mean, Walter Mossberg of the Wall Street Journal is largely um, retired. He's gone off. There were some other people with, uh, you know, David Pogue. He was now, I think, with Yahoo Finance for a while or Yahoo. But generationally, when young people, I talk to high schoolers and middle schoolers, they go straight to Marquise's, you know, YouTube site. And, and companies just send him things unsolicited. Samsung, Apple, he gets the keys to drive a Tesla. Yeah, send and that some. kind of cred, I mean, we would love to have him on the show, but that is also something that, you know, when, when I go and lecture students, young students, and they tell me, you know, who their influencers are, how marketing is done today, I feel like we're really on the precipice of something big. And no one has been able to put their finger on where this takes the financial services industry, where there's just zero cred right now. We talked about Mint. We see younger people Venmoing money back and forth. Sure, absolutely. Mint.com, a free financial planning service on, online. You know, so, I mean, it's turnkey. So kids will, will search online. They're going to Google. They're going to Google whatever they want. And they're going to listen to people they know, people that they text. If you have a friend that texts you and says, hey, Robin, what are you doing? They're probably going to do that. Take Robinhood.com. You can put any amount of money in Robinhood and trade for free. In short, any predictions for 2019? No, I don't, I don't predict. I never predict. I follow the charts. I follow my compass. And when it suggests I do something, that's when I do it. Tom Dorsey, great friend of the show. You're always welcome to come back on Full Disclosure. I'm really grateful to have you. But one more thing, Robin. I think we're going to get past 800 pounds. I mean, we're getting in debt. All right. You heard it here. Tom Dorsey, founder of Dorsey Wright & Associates. Sir, I cannot thank you enough. Anytime, Robin. I always enjoy it. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at this link, fullderadio.com. Coming in January to WCVE 88.9 FM in the RVA. I am Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 